Now, we're going to read today's text in just a moment, but uh, you'll discover right away that it kind of begins in the middle of a story, so I kind of want to catch you up. By this point in history, uh, I'm talking about the history of the church, (coughs) I'm just at the tail end of a cold that started basically last Sunday evening, so (laughs) I'm just at the tail end of it, but I've got just a little tickle, so I'm going to put something in my mouth and maybe that'll go away. So by this point in history, the church, which was probably in its second year, by Acts chapter 5, we're probably getting into the second year of church history, and it was experiencing astounding growth. Thousands of people were being baptized and were identifying themselves with Christ and, and the body of Christ. And there was a lot of other amazing stuff going on. Peter was so filled with power to heal in those days that people would bring their sick and place them on the sunshiny side of the street so that when Peter passed by, even his shadow falling on these people would cause them to get well. The Christian's popularity was more then than the high priest and his crew could stand. They hated what was going on because they hated Jesus when he was alive and they hated the fact that it seemed they couldn't kill him, that he came back to life and he was living in by the Holy Spirit, he was living in his apostles and disciples and all the Christians and And so they hated what was going on, and they arrested the apostles, and they held them overnight for trial the next day. But during the night, and you can read about this back in verses 19 and 20 and so forth, prior to what we're going to actually read, during the the night, the angel, an angel from God came and opened the jail and told the disciples, all 11 of them, or 12, depending on how you count, all 12 of them to go into the temple courtyards and start teaching the people again about the gospel. And, of course, that's exactly what Peter and the others did. They got up early the next morning, and they went to the temple and began to teach and to preach. Now, that brings us to our text in chapter 5, and starting in the second half of verse 21. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, and the good explanation is given right here in our text, the full senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. So, as far as they knew... Peter and the other apostles were in the jail just waiting to be summoned to the trial. But when the temple police got there, they did not find them in the jail, so they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the commander of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them as to what could come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple complex and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the temple police and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? And look, You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. (laughs) Actually, they're about to try it again, about to do it again in just a moment. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. That's the key phrase for the whole morning. We must obey God rather than men. Some of you may have an older translation. It may say something like, we ought to obey God rather than men. Not as strong a word as must. If you study the original language, you'll discover that must is the accurate translation. 
It needs to be stronger than ought. We must obey God rather than men. Whenever there is a discrepancy between what God has ordered and what man orders, we must obey God rather than men. And then here comes Peter putting the death of Christ right back, right back on the head of the high priest and his, his crew. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior <coughs> to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This also is the word of God, and I pray his blessing upon even its reading. We're going to dive into this in just a moment, but before we do, I need to introduce a couple of concepts. You'll see them on the screen behind me. I want to talk to you for a moment about the difference between an imminent frame, we're talking about a framework, a viewpoint of life, or the transcendent frame, and let me just explain them one at a time. Imminent means what is present within this world, right in front of you. In other words, Lauren is imminent to me. He's right in front of me. He's right there. And so are you and you and all of you. You're right here. It's of this world. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying, living in an imminent frame means living as if this world is all there is. Only what you can see, only what you can measure, only what you can weigh, only what you can touch or feel, only this world. This is the world and everything else, nothing else exists. Any world beyond this world then, for a person living within an imminent frame, anything beyond this world is a matter of personal opinion and speculation. Now when Carl Sagan said, remember how he began his TV show a number of years ago? He always started with these words, the universe is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. When he said those words, he was thinking exclusively within the imminent frame. You probably have figured out already this is not a Christian perspective or a Christian view. So let's talk about the transcendent frame for a moment. Transcendent means beyond normal or human experience. Heaven is transcendent. It is beyond the normal human experience. So is the whole idea of a life to come. That is a transcendent idea. Heaven is transcendent, the life to come, the time when we're going to be judged and rewarded and ushered into the glorious new heavens and the new earth. All of these things are transcendent. But here's the thing. In other generations, pretty much every generation before the 20th century, the, uh, the, uh, the world beyond this world, that is the supernatural world, the transcendent world was simply assumed by Christians to exist. Others as well would assume this transcendent world there were a lot of unbelievers who would speak about judgment to come and so forth. But for Christians, you just assumed there was a world to come. And Christians believed uh, that this, this world that was yet to come was the more important of the two. That the transcendent world was more important than the imminent world. I think it's really important that we keep this in mind. Christians are called to live in a transcendent frame. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, when we were going through that that wonderful chapter about the resurrection we read then, where Paul says, if we have our hope, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, that's the imminent approach, if we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. In other words, we need to have a transcendent view that our labor in the Lord is not in vain because there is a, an eternal place of reward. 
Now what's interesting to me is, and this is a second thought that I want to introduce before we get to our text, there are certain scriptures that come alive in specific times and circumstances. And so the verse that's at the heart of today's message, and I've already highlighted it for you, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. It's interesting that this verse had little relevance to Canadians before 1969. Now that's not an arbitrary number that I just pulled up. The fact is, 1969 was the year that abortion was legalized in Canada. And I would say that's arguably the moment when the supremacy of God and of the Bible began to be openly challenged in this country. 1969. Before 1969, I doubt, maybe I'm wrong, and if you prove me I'm wrong, that's okay, but I doubt that before 1969 there was a single law or custom in Canada that would prevent Christians from obeying God to the fullest extent. Prior to then, there was no hindrance whatsoever. In fact, I think it was quite the opposite because actually when Canada first wrote its laws and developed its criminal code, the men who did so had the English common law in one hand and the Bible in the other, and our laws were founded on those two basic principles, those two basic foundations. But today, both the Bible and common law are explicitly rejected in the name of science and human desire. Christian printers today are forced by courts to pay exorbitant fines if they refuse to print material that directly contradicts their Christian convictions. Children down to the youngest grades are taught the grossest forms of sexual perversion in our public schools. Parents are denied their God-given authority to instill their faith in their children. Grandmothers, I'm talking about women in their 70s, are violently arrested thrown in jail along with the worst kinds of other criminals, the drug addicts and the others that abuse themselves in various ways, thrown into prison simply because they stood near an abortion clinic and bowed their heads and prayed silently. We're talking about Canada. We're talking about the country that we call our home and native or our home and chosen land. And even churches and other nonprofit organizations are already forced to attest their agreement with the government's position on abortion and sexuality or else forego government grants to support their summer workers. These are facts. Now, men wiser than I are now speculating that if the government gets away with only funding those charities and nonprofits that formally agree with its position on abortion, future governments will go further. They could, for example require that same attestation in order to retain charitable status. You want, to, you want your people to be able to give and get some kind of a tax rebate for giving to the church? Then you have to attest your agreement with our position on abortion. And if that succeeds, then they'll require attestation in order to continue owning property. You want to maintain the building you've paid for and support here on the corner of Hawkwood Drive and John Laurie? Then you have to attest your affirmation of our position on abortion and human sexuality and so forth. Now, listen carefully. The particulars may have differed. Actually, the particulars did differ between, say, anything that we're experiencing today and what the church in Germany experienced throughout the 1930s. <coughs> but this gradual encroachment on Christian freedom in Christ is very much like the way the Nazis seduced the German church prior to the Second World War. 
the <coughs> excuse me the seduction of the Christian church in Germany was so thorough that by the time the war started, the true Christians in Germany had, had to form a separate organization which they called the Confessing Church and uh, to stand against the Nazis because the majority of the churches, of the mainline churches in Germany, were entirely in thrall to the, uh, to the Nazi party to the point of changing their Bible and a number of other things that they did, singing hymns of praise to the government in their worship services and so forth. Excuse me. I feel like I'm ending my service at this church like I began. In the first few years, if those of you who are old enough to remember that, and there are very few of no, I'm kidding about that, but, but um, you may remember this. It seemed like the first couple of years I was here, I'd, I would get over one cold just in time to start another one. But then for a number of years, and even now, I'm still relatively healthy, but Hopefully we're done with that. Mm. So, suddenly, remember how I began this part of the message? I began by saying there are certain verses that suddenly gain new importance for us. And I'm going to suggest that the verse, we must obey God rather than men, takes on a significance for us. Right here in Canada, in the year 2018, it takes, a, a significance, takes on a significance that it has not had in the English-speaking world for nearly 300 years. But think about this. What I've just said has no meaning unless you live in a transcendent frame. That is, these matters, these things matter only if you really believe that there is a life beyond this life, one that includes judgment and reward from the God who keeps records of all that we think, all that we say, and all that we do. Now, all that is prefaced to unpacking the text. I'm going to tell you what I'm, I, I will do. My typical custom in trying to unpack a passage of Scripture is to tell you what the verse means and then usually citing two or three other verses, one, two, or three other verses from other portions of Scripture to show you that this is the universal message of the Bible, that I'm not just making this up uh, and twisting the Scripture in this particular place to say something that I prefer it to say, that this is the universal message. Now, if you have the printed notes, you'll see that I've given numerous Scriptures after each of the points that I'm going to try to make I'm not going to read those scriptures today for the sake of time because I want to get on to something else that I will read to you in just a moment. So I'm going to make seven points as fast as I possibly can based upon the text we've just read from Acts chapter 5, and you'll see the scripture references, I believe, on the screen behind me. So point number one, no matter how much opposition God's people may face, rest assured that a sovereign and all-powerful God is always at work in the world. That is to say, from based on verse 19, which we didn't read, but I did refer to, the same God who released the apostles from prison and said, go preach the gospel at the temple, is still freeing his people and still sending us out to preach the gospel. Number two, God helps those who fearlessly proclaim the gospel. Again, based on verses 20 and 25, God was helping them to preach the gospel. Number three, the people who work for Christ's enemies are not our enemy. Let's get that in our heads. In fact, even in the worst of times, ordinary people often prove to be very friendly toward God's people. I'm thinking about verse 26, where it talks about how these guards who brought the, the apostles back to the, to the courtroom, to the Sanhedrin courtroom, 
they came with them very gently and very carefully because they feared the people, because they knew that the people were on the side of the, of the apostles and on the side of the Christians. And let's talk about that in just a moment. I'm going to make a point about how to live in such a way that the, the world is on our side, not on the government's. Let's talk about that in a moment, though. That was number three. Now number four. We need to live and behave in such a way that no fair-minded person who knows us would blame us when persecution comes. Did you hear that? You need to be friends with your neighbors. You need to live in such a way before the world that when persecution comes, the world will say, this is not your fault. In other words, when people hear that you're being harassed by the modern equivalent of the Sanhedrin court, that would be federal governments, provincial governments, local governments, etc., we need to have lived in the world in such a way that among those who know us, the thought will arise, they don't deserve this. I wish we had time to expand on these thoughts, but you'll just have to read the notes, if you will, and they'll be on the, actually on the website uh, by Tuesday or Wednesday at the latest, so you can read them yourself. Number five, Jesus warned us, and history has demonstrated that he spoke truth when he said that he will forever be the focus of the ungodly world's hatred. That's in verse 28. No surprise. Remember what it says there? You're going to try to bring this man's, you keep bringing this man's blood on our heads. Why do you keep doing this? Why do you insist on doing this? Well, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the judge who sits on the great white throne at the end of time. He is the one with whom the whole world has to do. And so it is our duty to remind the world of this fact. Number six. Boy, are we moving fast. I've never moved this fast in my life, but we're getting to something we're going to slow down in just a moment. Okay, we must obey the government in every way that we possibly can. That way, if we are forced to disobey the authorities because of some key point in our faith, it will be an obvious anomaly to one and all that disobedience toward the government will not be seen as our SOP, our standing operate, uh, standard operating procedure. This is not how we usually do things. We need to be renowned for our obedience to the government so that when we are forced to disobey, everyone sees that this is the exception and not the rule. The one thing, though, that we cannot do is allow ourselves to shut up or be shut up and, and, and uh, be told that we cannot talk about Jesus. We dare not cease to worship him, and we cannot stop proclaiming him. If we are going to get into trouble from the authorities, let it be for this, that we would not stop telling the world that Jesus is Lord. Number seven, God stands ready to empower our witness about Jesus. I love this theme. I wish we had time to develop it. But look at verse 32 where he says, we are witnesses. Peter says, we are witnesses to his resurrection. We're witnesses to his enthronement above. The very day of Pentecost was the, the concrete evidence that Christ had been enthroned above and that he had sent, as he promised he would do, the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says, we are witnesses. But notice what he says and so also is the Holy Spirit. He also witnesses to the truth of the gospel. So, let's just say it again. God stands ready to empower our witness about Jesus. He may bless other things that Christians do, but over and over throughout Scripture, God tells us that if we really want spiritual power to flow, speaking the gospel is the one guaranteed way to make it happen. That's enough then about that. Now, what I want to do, I trust that you already understood this passage. Many of you have probably read it repeatedly and are very familiar with it and understood its overall meaning before I ever said anything about it. 
But what I want to do now for the remaining time that we have is to show you what Acts 5.29 looks like in a truly extreme situation, but a, a, a real-life situation that exists right now in our world. And so I plan, if you'll be gracious enough to let me do it, I plan now to read the entire statement of those 116 Chinese pastors who on September the 1st released this document for the benefit of the leaders in China, President Xi Jinping and the other communist leaders and those who are persecuting the church in, in uh, China. I'll tell you why I'm reading it because, well, I'll, I'll tell you more about why I'm reading it when I finish, but uh, I do have, want you to have in the back of your mind the possibility that it may be time for God's people in Canada to speak to the powers that be in similar, with similar words, in similar language. I find this document to be one of the most amazingly balanced and clear and powerful protestations of what Christians must be like in times of persecution. I've never seen anything better. I've never seen anything better. Never heard of anything better. So let me read it to you now with as little comment as possible. I will tell you that as we go by, screen by screen, only portions of each paragraph are going to be on the screen. There's just too many words here to put them all on the screen. Your eyes would just go buggy. So only portions of each paragraph will be on the screen. But again, if you want to read the entire thing, just Google or do your, word, your search, uh, duck, duck, go search for um, uh, 116 Chinese pastors' statement. That'll get all that you need right there. So here's how it begins. We are a group of Chinese Christians chosen by the Most High God to be his humble servants, serving as pastors for Christian churches throughout various towns and cities. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that the one true and living triune God is the creator of the universe, of the world, and of all people. All men should worship God and not any man or thing. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that all men, from national leaders to beggars and prisoners, have sinned. On the way to church this morning, uh, our grandson Sean was with us, and we were talking about what he had been studying at school this week, the, the French Revolution. And he reminded me of the, the fact that there were three estates. There were the nobles, and there was the church, and then there were the common people, the three estates of France. And I said, well, where did the king fit in? And he said, the king did not fit in any of those three estates. He was considered to be above the law, a law unto himself. Xi Jinping is convinced that he and his Communist Party, they are a law unto themselves. It's fascinating that about the same time, that the, actually just slightly before the French Revolution took place, there was an Englishman, an English pastor, named Samuel Rutherford, who wrote a book entitled Lex Rex. Latin words, Lex for law, Rex for king. And the interesting thing is it means the law is king even over the king. The king is under the law. Law is king. And so the king of Britain had been reminded probably for a hundred years prior to the French Revolution that he was under God's law, answerable to God's law. These Chinese pastors are reminding this communist, atheist uh, secretary of the Communist Party of, Can of China that he is under God's law. We believe in or are obligated to teach the world that all men, from national leaders to beggars and prisoners, have sinned. They will die once and then be judged in righteousness. Apart from the grace and redemption of God, all men would eternally perish. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that the crucified and risen Jesus 
is the only head of the global church, the sole savior of all mankind, and the everlasting ruler and supreme judge of the universe. To all who repent and believe in him, God will give eternal life and an eternal kingdom. And then they begin to delineate the crimes that the state has committed against God's people. In September 2017, the state council issued the new regulations on the administration of religious affairs and began implementing these regulations in February 2018. Ever since then, Christian churches across China have suffered varying degrees of persecution, contempt, and misunderstanding from government departments doing, during public worship and religious practices, including various administrative measures that attempt to alter and distort the Christian faith. In other words, if you let us define what Christianity is, we'll let you be Christians. Yeah, some of these violent actions are unprecedented since the end of the Cultural Revolution. These include demolishing crosses on church buildings, violently removing expressions of faith like crosses and couplets hanging on Christians' homes. You know what a couplet is? It's a little two-line poem. Generally, it rhymes in English. It'll generally rhyme, and it will generally contain uh, an, an, a beautifully worded truth. So these couplets would be uh, little, little passages of Scripture, little, little uh, scriptural ideas, Christian ideas that would be perhaps beautifully framed and hung on the wall to remind them. Sometimes I go in one of your homes and I'll see a, some kind of a little plaque on the wall by the front door that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The very same thing, the same kind of thing. So the couplets then, forcing churches to, uh, uh, tearing them off of Christians' homes, forcing and threatening churches to join religious organizations controlled by the government, forcing churches to hang the national flag or to sing secular songs praising the state and political parties, banning the children of Christians from entering churches and receiving religious education, and depriving churches and believers of the right to gather freely. We believe that these unjust actions are an abuse of government power and have led to serious conflicts between political and religious parties in Chinese society. These actions infringe on the human freedoms of religion and conscience and violate the universal rule of law. We are obligated to announce bad news to the authorities and to all of society. God hates all attempts to suppress human souls and all acts of persecution against the Christian church, and he will condemn and judge them with righteous judgment. This sounds like Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the other, Ezekiel, one of the other Old Testament prophets. It is prophetic. It is powerful. It is truth. But we are even more obligated, and notice the balance here. We are even more obligated to proclaim good news to the authorities and to all of society. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the Savior and King of all mankind, in order to save us sinners, was killed, was buried, and rose from the dead by the power of God, destroying the power of sin and death. In His love and compassion, God has prepared forgiveness, and salvation for all who are willing to believe in Jesus, including Chinese people. At any time, anyone can repent from any sin, turn to Christ, fear God, obtain eternal life, and bring great blessing from God upon his family and country. For the sake of faith and conscience, for the spiritual benefits of the authorities in China and of society as a whole, and ultimately for the glory, holiness, and righteousness of God, we make the following declaration to the Chinese government and to all of society. There are four parts to the declaration, so let's go through them and then it's over. Number one, Christian churches in China believe unconditionally in that the Bible is the word and revelation of God. I wish that 
more Canadian churches could state the same thing. It is the source and final authority of all righteousness, ethics, and salvation. If the will of any political party, the laws of any government, or the commands of any man directly violate the teachings of the Bible, harming men's souls. Notice this emphasis throughout this whole document. They're not interested in rebellion. They're interested in what the government is doing to harm men's souls. And they want to stop it if they possibly can. Harming men's souls and opposing the gospel proclaimed by the church, we are obligated to obey God rather than man or men. So you see the, the relevance of that verse. And we are obligated to teach all members of the church to do the same. Number two, Christian churches in China are eager and determined to walk the path of the cross of Christ and are more than willing to imitate the older generation of saints who suffered and were martyred for their faith. We are willing and obligated under any circumstances to face all government persecution, misunderstanding, and violence with peace, patience, and compassion. For when churches refuse to obey evil laws, it does not stem from any political agenda. It does not stem from resentment or hostility. It stems only from the demands of the gospel and from a love of Chinese society. Number three, Christian churches in China are willing to obey authorities in China whom God has appointed. They're reminding Xi Jinping that he may have felt like he fought his way to the top, but in fact he was put there by the sovereign power of God. That's why he's the ruler there. And they, they acknowledge that, they acknowledge it in order to remind him of that. Some of us tend to look at it back and we say, oh, why is God doing it to us that he would put Xi Jinping or his equivalent in the prime minister's chair in, in Canada or the president's chair in the United States or whatever it may be, the chancellor's chair in Germany? Why would he put this evil person in charge of us? How, how can we say God is sovereign when he lets such a thing happen? But then we, if we truly believe in the sovereignty of God, we come back and we remind Mr. Trudeau or we remind uh, uh, Mr. Trump, or we remind um, uh, Ms. Merkel, or whoever it may be, we remind these people, Xi Jinping in China, we remind them that they are there and on the, upon the sufferance of God Almighty, and that they cannot rule without his support. So I believe that we need to reaffirm the sovereignty of God in these matters because of the power it gives us to speak directly to the Nebuchadnezzars of our day. And so, the sovereignty of God, and so he, as it says here, verse 3, number 3, Christian churches in China are willing to obey authorities in China whom God has appointed and to respect the government's authority to govern society and human conduct. We believe and are obligated to teach all believers in the church that the authority of the government is from God and that as long as the government does not overstep the boundaries of secular power laid out in the Bible and does not interfere with or violate anything related to faith or the soul, Christians are obligated to respect the authorities, to pray fervently for their benefit, and to pray earnestly for Chinese society. For the sake of the gospel, we are willing to suffer all external losses brought about by unfair law enforcement. Out of a love for our fellow citizens, we are willing to give up all of our earthly rights. God help us to hear that. And when you hear somebody promoting the idea that Christians are to be out there fighting for social justice, try to square that with this. Try to square the idea of fighting for social justice 
with the whole concept in 1 Peter chapter 2, for example, which talks about us being loving and kind and obedient even to those masters that are cruel to us. I think the Chinese have nailed it. I think way too many Canadian Christians have gone off on a, 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 a side road that will lead to destruction of the Christian faith in the end. Number four, we're nearly through. For this reason, again, the Chinese pastors, for this reason we believe and are obligated to teach all believers that all true churches in China that belong to Christ must hold to the principle of the separation of church and state and must proclaim Christ as the sole head of the church. Not every Christian with a European background has the clarity of mind on this issue that these Chinese Christians do. We tend to think of earthly people like the Queen of England or somebody else as the head of the church on earth. God help us to remember who the true head of the church is. We declare that in matters of external conduct, churches are willing to accept lawful oversight by civil administration or other government departments as other social organizations do. For example, one thing that I love about our church just now is that we now have a, a director of a ministry of safety. And I love the fact that Keith Landra brings to our attention what the government asks us to do to make sure that there is a, a measure of safety afforded to those who come to worship here, and if we're having a meal together or whatever it may be, that we are truly following safe practices and uh, so that you can have a sense of security for yourselves and for your children that are downstairs and so forth and so on. We need to comply with the government as much as we possibly can. But listen to what comes next. But under no circumstances will we lead our churches to join a religious organization controlled by the government. That is some false church set up by the government. Or to register with the religious administration department. Or to accept any kind of, of affiliation. We also will not accept any ban or fine imposed on our churches due to our faith. For the sake of the gospel, we are prepared to bear all losses, even the loss of our freedom and our lives. And that's the end. I, um, if you go to the website where, where the English translation is found, and it's easy to find, if you go there, you'll discover that right below these words then come the names of the 116 pastors along with the churches they serve, both in English and then at the very bottom in Chinese. And um, I'm not able to read that, of course, but there it is. I have just a handful of closing thoughts. We're going to be done in a reasonable hour, a reasonable time. Four closing thoughts, if I may put them before you. The first one is this. I don't presume to tell you what choices Hawkwood Baptist Church must make in coming years. I, I really do, in this sense only, feel like the Apostle Paul. I, I'm not the Apostle Paul, and I don't feel qualified in any sense to even you know, polish his shoes, so to speak. But in the sense that he had last words to say to some of the churches as he knew he would be meeting with them for the last time or nearly the last time, and he felt an importance, something he had to deliver before he, he could not see them again or before he did not see them any longer. In that sense, that's how I feel just now. I can't tell you what to do, the choices you're going to make in the coming years, but I know that hard choices are coming, and they are coming sooner than you think. The specific choices will almost certainly be different from those that are faced by our Chinese friends, 
our brothers and sisters in Christ in China, just as the specific choices the German Christians had to make in the 1930s were different from the choices we're going to need to make in the 2010s and 20s and so forth. The choices will be different, the specific choices will be different, but they will be of the same type. The government will be forcing us to choose between existence, these will be existential choices, we'll have to choose between existence as the body of Christ publicly worshiping here or compromise and, and compromise or loyalty to Christ. That's what we'll have to do. That's, what, that's where the choice will lay. Now, secondly, the temptation will be to always put off taking a stand. I recognize the wisdom in the words, this isn't the hill to die on. And honestly, there are people who, I think, die too soon on too many second-level uh, hills. So people will say about this there, or that or the other thing, this isn't the hill to die on. But the problem is, the more you say this isn't the hill to die on, the more that expression morphs into the thought, there is no hill worth dying on. And so I'm saying now as a challenge to you individually, as a challenge to Hawkwood Baptist Church, to early as possible, make up your mind, what is the hill upon which you must die? Either you know, follow Christ into death or miraculous deliverance, but you're going to follow Christ no matter what happens. Here's the hill where I'm prepared to die. You need to know where that hill is. In your own personal life, you need to know where that hill is as a church. Thirdly, by all means, get as involved in governing and influencing society as much as you possibly can. I love the fact that we have people in this congregation seated here today who can whisper into the, into the ears of members of parliament and influence the decisions that are made at the highest level of the Canadian government. That's crucial. And some of you ought to dedicate your lives, depending on your gift mix, depending on your call, depending on your interest, depending on your personality and a lot of other things, you ought to dedicate your life to becoming a member of the city council or the provincial legislature, or even the, uh, the Parliament of Canada, whatever it may be. Dedicate your life, not necessarily to the prominence of being the guy who's in charge, but the guy or the gal who's whispering into the ear of the guy who's in charge, who's influencing them, who's doing the research for the positions they take and the bills they present, and so forth and so on. Influence society. Get involved in science. Get involved in the arts. Get involved in, with a specific intention of being the best you can be at whatever the profession may be, and then standing for Jesus. I love the Christian lawyers that are fighting for Christian-based law, Christian law in Canada today. Do all you can. The Daniels, the Mordecais, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and even the wives of the Caesars, I'm thinking biblically here, all of these made real differences for the kingdom. But, and this is number four, the most important thing you can do is pray and work for revival. I keep hearing the idea that law is, and, and legislative, legislative powers are downstream from culture. In other words, you can't push the culture in the right direction by the laws that you can, you know, by the, when you try to elect the right people that were, will make the right laws, they have to get a lot more people voting for them than just the Christians. So law is always, legislative, legislative work is always downstream from culture. And that's why we see our, our, our legislative bodies, for example, embracing a whole lot of ungodliness because our culture is ungodly. But let me ask you a question. Why must the times be forever ungodly? The history of revival tells us one thing for certain. That is, 
that revivals can come, that no matter how low cultures sink, uh, again, thinking of the, the French Revolution and the, the big question, why was there no English Revolution equivalent to the French Revolution? Partly because of books like Lex Rex, that the law and even the king of England in those days began to submit to the law differently from the king of France. So that's one reason. But there, the society had deteriorated in the mid-1700s, 1740, 1745. The society in Britain was so low that some estimates have it that every fifth house in, in, in London was a, was a gin mill and, and a gin-selling home. In other words, every fifth house. We think we're sinking into depravity with all the pot and all the other things that are now coming, uh, marijuana that are being legalized and so forth. Think about it. Every fifth house in London producing gin and selling it on the streets at ever cheaper prices. Drunkenness was, you can't believe how widespread it was. And people thought, because of the poverty, because of the drunkenness, the degradation, we're going to have a revolution just like France. But they didn't. Because George Whitfield and John Wesley and a host of those maybe lesser known lights, but powerful preachers, every one of them, 40, 50, maybe 200 men, went out across England preaching the gospel and touching men's hearts, and revival came, and out of that came what's known as the great Methodist revival, and even secular historians have said that England did not experience the, the bloodbath of the French Revolution because of, the, um, because of the, the revival that came. And so I say to you again, the history of revival tells us that no matter how degraded a society may become, revival can follow that. And revivals do come when God's people get serious about seeking them. Now, I want to be as clear as I possibly can be here. And I'm, as I said last week, I can let myself go a little bit because you won't have me to kick around much longer. I have to tell you this. There is a doctrine of, of, of the Lord's second coming that denies the possibility of revival in our day. That doctrine is unbiblical. And it needs to be set aside. And we need to... We need to embrace God's word that says there is, let me be clear about this, there is no definite scripture that tells us that we're in the end of the end times. None of that is proven. All that is supposition and guess. We need to be focused on revival. Let Jesus come when he will. We need to be focused on preparing our hearts, preparing our lives, preparing ourselves for God's Holy Spirit to be poured out like it was at Pentecost. So that thousands of people, and we, you know all about the history of the Great Awakenings and the revivals before that, thousands of people start to come into the churches and we're ready to disciple them and we're ready to show them the right direction. We're ready to see Canada, North America, the West, the world saved for the glory of God. We need to pray and look forward to revival. Again, I've heard people say, well, this verse doesn't, I'm going to talk to you about 2 Chronicles 7, 14, and I'm going to read it, and I'm done. And some have said, this verse doesn't apply. It's an Old Testament verse. I'm telling you, the more I've studied it, the more I recognize the absolute universality of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And in the years to come, I'm not sure there's any verse in the Bible that could be a more sure guide to what God wants Hawkwood Baptist Church to be than this verse right here. Let's bow our heads, please. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me ask you, have you, have you thought it through? Do you know where 
do you know where in your personal life there's a hill that you would have to die on? In other words, that you would just have to say, okay, I can agree with you up to this point, whether it be, uh, whether it be a government official, whether it be a teacher or a professor in a classroom, whether it be an employer. Have you thought about the necessity of thinking it through? I can agree with my, the unbelievers around me up to this point, but beyond that I cannot go. I must accept whatever consequences come into my life. Have you thought about what it would take as a church to take a stand for the fundamentals of the Christian faith against what's coming against us? The cost in terms of how we raise our children, the schools we send them to, the lives we live before them, the focus of our lives before the world. Are you committed to the concept that I will live in my neighborhood in such a way that when the government comes to get me, every person on the street will be thinking the same thought, they don't deserve this. And all of it for the glory of God. One thing that we did do today by reading this document from China, the gospel was clearly expressed. Is it possible that God is calling you to repent of sin, to believe in Jesus, to be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, to be filled with the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, to live your life for the transcendent God, the God who is, who is sending his son to come back to, to this world someday. But whether he sends his son in our lifetime or we die and go to heaven, either way there is a world beyond this world. There is a life beyond this life. There is a God with whom we must reckon. Is it possible that you're being called to faith in Jesus Christ even as I speak? Give your life to Jesus. Just You say, well, I don't know the words. Yeah, you do. Just say, Jesus, I need you, I want you, I, I understand who you are. You're the, you're the Son of God, you're the eternal second person of the Trinity, you're the Savior of the world, you died for my sins on the cross. You rose again so that you could give me eternal life, and, and you're calling me now by your Holy Spirit, and I, I come, I come in repentance from my life of, of sin, and not, we're not talking about particular sins, we're talking about a life of rebellion against God, a life lived for yourself. I come now to repent of my selfish, self-centered life, I come now to live for you because you have come to live in me and you live for me. Give your heart to Jesus. 